0: Hey guys, how's it going? My name is Joseph Fordham and this is NPLH In Conversation with the football podcast that isn't about football brought to you by NPLH Studio. NPLH is more than a podcast. Once you've hit the follow button, visit nplhmag.com to enjoy online reads, subscribe to our newsletter and browse our collection of magazines, prints and apparel. On to the show. Hello. I'm Joe Fordham, and you're listening to NPLH In Conversation With, the podcast where I speak to interesting and influential people from within the football landscape, in my opinion anyway. In this episode, I catch up with John Cross, co-founder of Kennedy Park FC, the community club born on a patch of concrete in Portland, Maine. Among other things, we discuss how two older sisters provided inspiration to take up the game.
1: My older sister, Megan, started to play. She actually started to wear number nine and we were all just kind of obsessed with playing after that and playing number nine. And we all played in the backyard and it just kind of took off. My sister Nikki went to like Germany and Bayern Munich and Australia.
0: And the battle with addiction that would take him away from it.
1: Moved into South Boston and I actually called up the old coach. And was like, can I play? I went up there, I did play for like a, I think it was like a month and a half and drugs and alcohol ripped me back. I ended up having to,
0: to quit. John speaks openly of his route into addiction, football's role in his route out of it, and how his experiences help on his new path as a coach and a mentor. I hope you enjoy. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. I'm still getting to grips with this. Uh, There's always something I miss.
1: Yeah, no worries, no worries. It's good. it
0: sounds good though. How's the day been?
1: It's good. It's snowing here, so it's a little little slow, and you know it's hard to drive around. Got like a few inches of snow on the ground, so trying to trying to figure that. out.
0: <laughs> Playing inside at the minute, I take it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as much as we possibly can, they'll give us the latest times possible because we can't afford the prime time spots. But
0: <laughs> yeah, late nights then. Late nights in Portland at the minute.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, up, I'm getting home around midnight, twelve thirty in the morning, so.
0: How long are you over there playing?
1: Um, so it depends which night. We, I mean, hour and a half, two hours, either nine to a, nine to eleven or ten to twelve. And then I got to pack up and do it there. And if we get, we get really lucky, we'll get like an early morning spot, like seven to eight thirty or nine. So
0: oh, nothing at the, the end of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I play brutal. on Tuesday nights in a similar similar shift. You get the nine o'clock till ten o'clock slot. And if you're lucky and the, um, like the pitch warden or whatever comes over a little bit later, you might squeeze an extra 15, 20 minutes into the game.
1: Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you can get as much yeah. as
0: you can. <laughs> but we're 39, 40 years old now, the guys I play with. So we don't need too many more extra minutes at the end of a game. We're kind of we're happy if he comes over dead on 10. Yeah, 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 tap you out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tapping out. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, it's good to see you again. It's been, um, what just over two years since we first spoke?
1: Yeah, for yeah, yeah. issue nine. Yeah, you kind of found us. you found us right in the beginning of everything. I mean, a lot's happened since then, but you know, kind of still the same beliefs and core values of where we we began. But kind of seeing where that brought us has been, been a pretty cool adventure, to tell you the truth.
0: Yeah, from what I've picked up online, it looks like you've you've really grown over the past couple of years.
1: Yeah, I think we're, I mean, we're also good at social media. So I think people think we've been around for a long time and, you know, we've really used the, I mean, I use all the local high school kids and, and with the use of social media. Cause I mean, it really brings kids out. Um, it's like how the kids find out information. So for me, it's just like the access of information through social media has been huge. It's like probably the reason we, we exist. I'm 35, but like, I'll give credit to social media for helping us out here. <laughs>
0: How have you kept all that hair at 35?
1: Oh, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. I guess I got one
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, front of the queue for that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when we last spoke, we were, we were looking at, we focused more on uh, what Kennedy Park FC was. We touched on um, a little bit of yours and Harney's journeys before that. Mm -hmm. but um if it's okay with you it'd be great to go further back and and touch on the timeline leading up to to portland and and then what it's become now if that's okay with you
1: yeah 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 i'm open book you can kind of ask whatever you want and um we can talk about whatever you want i'm whatever it's all fair game for me
0: good man nice one okay so before portland where was home
1: Home for me was Massachusetts. I grew up like a little bit south of Boston, probably like 25, 30 minutes south of Boston in like a suburb town called Pembroke. Um, but I have, like since then I I had moved all around. I moved to California for a few months, Florida for for a couple of years, uh, and then bounced all around Massachusetts trying to figure it out, but that was home originally. Yeah, it was uh Massachusetts.
0: And football was a big part of your family, wasn't it? I remember you saying you came from a a pretty prolific family in that respect
1: yeah yeah so my, my you know people always think that it's uh my parents that influenced us to play you know the game well, because my dad's from germany and my mom's from from korea but my dad actually was like a frisbee player kind of hanging out you know not he wasn't like a you know traditional traditional athlete um and then my mom was a cheerleader. So like wasn't really like like she didn't grow up around the game. They weren't but it's just my older sister Megan started to play. She actually started to wear number nine. And we were all just kind of obsessed with playing after that and playing number nine and being number nine. And we all played in the backyard and it just kind of from there took off. My sister went to college and played. My sister Nikki went to like went to college, UConn, Gatorade Player of the Year, and then Germany and Bayern Munich and Australia and St. Louis and California and Houston. Uh, and then my old brother, Matt was, was a baller as well. He played at BU and um, had some tryouts, uh, ended up bumming his knee out early on and just, you know, kind of decided to bail out of the, the chase, you know, I mean, it happens to a lot of players, which is, which is tough to hear.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, there's a, uh, there's plenty of those, those around those kind of nearly, nearly stories, right? Yeah. Too um, many. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With a, so with a full house, of siblings all into the game. Did that make it kind of like competitive? Were there any raised expectations within the the family dynamic for a career? I mean, I know you say Nikki was obviously leading the way in that respect. Did that yeah, make it I mean, difficult I, for the rest of you?
1: Yeah, I would say, well, my parents were never like, uh, wouldn't put any un, undue pressure on us. So, you know, it wasn't like, hey, rise to this level or you're, you're nothing. You know, they never really kind of did that to us. They, they always said, hey, it's a game. We love the game chase the game if you want to chase the game um and the way you know soccer set up over here is it's a full-time job so we were kind of committed to playing it all year round um the pressure kind of started coming on when the full ride started for me at least i'm the youngest of the four um after like the first one got a full ride and then the second one got a full ride and the third one got a full ride and i'm like make it a full ride. You know? <laughs> uh, I, did, I didn't, you know, so I think that was like, for me, was the pressure, you know, cause I think cause my sister Nikki is the one just right above me. So she's, a, she's one of the middle. Um, so she was had like the, it was high expectations and my brother Matt had pretty high expectations. She kind of beat it. So I guess it was my job to take it to the, to the next one. So I guess yeah, I didn't, I didn't really do that, but <laughs> yeah, see, there was a lot of pressure in the house for that in my own head, at least
0: so when you say full ride i think i understand that but just for any like the british listeners i take it you mean scholarships
1: yeah so it's you know you get a yeah they call it a full boat full ride over here is if you're the top player in the area division one or division two schools can pick you up they pay for your education they pay for your housing they pay for your food which could cost people up to 40 to you know hundreds of thousands of dollars you know to kind of do that for four years and if you go to you no, know, you get the you get the full ride. I mean you get to do all the stuff for free, but they do expect you to have a you know, they mimic the pro life, right? They're coming in, they pre season, they lift all year round, they got the spring season. So they're they don't travel much in between that. It's it's you play ball for four years straight and you kinda gotta do that or they take it away from you.
0: They get their pound of flesh out of you, I bet.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's worth it for them, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. I yeah. bet. So being last in line, as it were, and um and with the other three getting those rides, were you aware of any expectations or the weight of that at the time?
1: Yeah, it was actually, I remember in, when I was probably like 11 or 10, there was an article written like, you no, know, soccer runs in the cross family. This is kind of who they are. They're a staple in the area. They're really good at the, the game. They bring them places and I'm like just the youngest waiting. And I kind of started to come on the scene when pay to play and like high clubs kind of paved the way so i mean they were around before but they really started to take off when i was in that area where if you didn't get picked up early and get noticed by a big club early um and have the money to afford it you were going to kind of get left in the dust and so i knew that my time was coming like can you get picked up can you get noticed you know i was i was in that world right i was traveling around the united states and playing with these these clubs some of those kids you know ended up some of them play pro um I remember the age group above me in my club was Charlie Davies played on the team. So he was on the U S national team for a little while. Um, I think he, he is in the broadcaster now for like the, the American, um, national team. So, you know, he's, this, I was, you know, kind of rubbing shoulders with these types of guys, but I definitely felt the pressure. And, uh, every single time I, I just kept, kept falling short, kept falling short. And I kept thinking oh, if I don't get it. And then my grades started to slip and eventually kind of fell into some, some bad times there. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good segue. I know you touched on this briefly when we spoke a couple of years ago. Um, but high school was where you kind of fell in to some tricky times with drugs, right? Yeah, yeah. So would you say was that like a byproduct of the the kind of the pressure you were feeling and the falling short, and then just kind of like I don't know the wrong guys that you were with? Like what was the what was this, the story there?
1: I would say it's a blend of both. So, you know, obviously you, you, you hang out with the company that you have and, you, you know, you kind of do what the company does, you know. So we were drinking a lot in high school and, you know, going on the weekends and, you know, having a bunch of beers and having a good time, a bunch of laughs. But with the soccer, you know, in the world of like, you know, that I was in, um, if you didn't make it early, you know, you didn't have time. You could try. I mean, for me, I was traveling to four or five, six hours for one game and then, you know, just coming on for 15 minutes. And you know that was kind of a e- ego blow for me. And at that time, when I wasn't getting the looks that I wanted, um, also with the grades and schools were like, if this kid doesn't figure it out, you know, because I was I was really good. I'm not gonna lie. Like you know, and these' um, does not get his grades up. He's we're not gonna, we're gonna pass on him. And as kids started to get picked up on my team, I started to switch clubs. Right, I tried to figure go to the next club, I get more time, and and I fall short there. So I would just skip practice to a party because you know if I'm not gonna play, I might as well go party and you know, the identity shift from high-end player to a guy that, like, could have been, almost was, to he decided to not go play in college at all. And, you know, for me, I've always thought I was a big deal, you know, so at least, and, like, that soccer world treated me like I was one. So by the time I was senior year, it wasn't that anymore, but I did know how to, like, you know, rip it up with the boys and, and have a good time, and they thought I was a good time. So I actually quit playing right after my senior year of high school around like 18 years old and was just like full-time identity, you know, drink beers, hang out, you know, get in trouble, do all you know, do whatever, you know. Um, but nothing to do with the complete identity shift at that point in my life.
0: That's a really interesting point there. You say that the the football world would big you up to that degree. Mm-hmm. How much responsibility do you think is on on them in doing that? Like, you know, young guys and girls and impressionable ages and being told, you're this you're that and um i guess it raises expectations in your own head right and then when if and when they don't come to fruition there's naturally going to be some sort of come down from that and and consequences i guess if you're not fulfilling what you feel everyone is saying you should fulfill would you agree with that
1: yeah i mean i don't think we have enough honest conversation with with, with the young players you know it's like especially the the high expectation players when they're younger you know the, the what if it doesn't come true are you still going to be okay do you have other things in your life that will um you know, give you purpose give you give you drive you know do you want to become something else you know i think it happens with even high end players right they you see them they quit the game they kind of spiral they don't know who they are they're in the limelight and suddenly they're just a, a retired player like everybody else paying on Sunday, you know, grabbing their knee every 15 minutes, you know, after a bad play, you know, I mean, you know, there's a bunch of guys out there that did that, and you know, they don't know how to to deal with that either. You know, it could be at 35, or it could be at for me, it came at 18, and I don't think there's enough like education and real conversations with them that. And also, um, even if you are good, there is that moment where you jump from youth to you know, the next level and you were going to have like an ego check and you're not going to be as good as the rest. I mean, very few do you see, I mean, you saw it in the World Cup, like top young players that actually made a difference, a lot struggled. And I think they need to know when they get to that level that they're not going to be the guy. And to be able to overcome that is is, is pretty big.
0: So you're, you're 18 and you've fallen out of the game and you're, you're well and truly into the, the party lifestyle now. This is where things start to get a little bit, tricky for you right if i've got the timeline correct as you're heading into college and you're not just kind of like drinking and partying there's a there's like a spiral into a a deeper issue are you, are you comfortable talking about that
1: oh yeah 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 i mean I, I uh i speak to young kids and college kids about this a lot you know i tell this part of my story a lot because i think the the 18 to 19 year old world that part of my life was like one of the most defining moments of my life you know it took me a long time to get out of these these decisions that i made and the lifestyles that i did but i ended up moving to south florida not playing at all and i was thrown in this college campus i got heavily involved in cocaine uh prescription drugs xanax the party lifestyle in south beach uh the money that's involved in south beach and kind of the materialistic world that is down there and i i fell for it bad like the i was like this is it you know if i can't if i can't chase the ball around for the rest of my life for the next four years, at least. I mean, I'm going to chase around the parties. I'm going to chase around the scene, the money, the, you know, the dates, you know, everybody. Right. So, and and like when that happened, uh, I thought I'd found like my next kind of thing and it just ate me up and Miami ate me up and South Florida ate me up and Fort Lauderdale did. And that two years down there was a really tough time. I didn't know who I was, what I was going to be. And I ended up having to leave south florida moved back up to boston halfway through my college um career because i just I couldn't couldn't do it anymore i was just suffering so bad and yeah i got into a lot of fights drinking plus plus an argument doesn't go you know, i'm always just someone that says something too quick too fast
0: <laughs> that's the massachusetts in you i guess yeah yeah definitely yeah. <laughs> 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 so you're you're without football and you're going into that life do you do you think it's a case of like uh that was filling a hole of some kind of high that you were chasing.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, oh, I definitely. And I think I wasn't just going to party or just sell a little bit of drugs. I was going to um, party a lot, be really good at it, and I was going to sell a good amount of drugs. So you had to come find me. And I think that was the same thing as what you know being a, being a player did for me, right? I was the guy that, you know, you want another team, you, wanted, you know, it's, People talked about them, needed them, and that like was a perfect exchange at that point in my life. And I kind of fell in love with it. I was like, like a mirage. It wasn't real love, but I fell in love with just like how it made me feel, made me feel important again.
0: Yeah, it's easy to understand how that can be so intoxicating mm-hmm. in like more than one way. Just on an emotional level, you're getting that kind of adulation that you'd have been getting in your teens playing football.
1: It does until you know you you wake up in the morning and you kind of blink your eyes a few times and you look around and you realize you've been living a lie and you know, the need to have the next drink earlier in the day becomes quicker and quicker and quicker. Right. Before it was, I could wait till nine, ten o'clock at night. Then it was noontime. I needed drinks. And then it was, I just need to, you know, get high in the morning, just a little bit to get to class, you know? So, cause it became just a little more unbearable every day to be me every morning I woke up because of the feeling the drugs and the alcohol gave me.
0: Would you say there was some kind of, um, and I'm just saying this from from my own experiences, that kind of uh you touched on it was becoming a little bit more unbearable to be you. And those feelings of self-loathing and uh is something that I can relate to over time in definitely in, in recent years. Maybe you're not aware of it at the time, but in doing in living the way you were living, you're kind of stepping away from yourself in many ways. And you're not living in a alignment with your true passions and interests you're just kind of living and chasing chasing whatever and it's easy to to not like who's in the mirror isn't it when when you're doing that you kind of feel like you've filled the hole but you're just um i guess you're just scrambling to get through through days in some respects so um like two years in you've you've kind of hit a saturation point in florida and you've got to get out so you well, you go elsewhere, you go back to Massachusetts to finish studies.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I had thought, you know, at this point, um, I used to randomly try to go play down in Florida. I play on the club team and like even that club team coach was like, the, there's the first varsity team at the school I was at and there's like a club team that kind of like you can come and go and it's not as serious. And I remember I tried up down there and they were like, What are you doing? You're good like you're good, but what are you doing? And so I thought I always wondered if like would would playing again save me like I thought that would be the case. So when I ran from Florida, I went up to uh, UMass Boston and Dorchester, Massachusetts and moved into South Boston um, with a couple of friends in an apartment. And I actually called up the old coach and was like, can I play? And I walked back on, which was like the worst thing for me because not uh, for the coach. It's just like, I immediately was like, Oh, you are that good. You are that awesome. And you don't have to try and, you know, I'll get this identity back, but I was already too deep in the, the drug world at that point that it wasn't going to like let me out that easy. Like, you know, the game wasn't going to save me anymore. And when I went up there, I did play for like a, I think it was like a month and a half and drugs and alcohol ripped me back. I ended up having to, to quit, um, you know, struggling showing up hungover uh, drug tests were about to come up and I just walked from the team that year. Again, same thing happened the, the year after that. So I was like trying to jump back in, but you know, who I'd become was chasing me, right? People like come out, come out, party with us, hang out with us. You know, we need this, we need that. And every time i try to go play, it just it didn't have the game couldn't save me anymore. It was, it's kind of a tough thing to describe, but it was really a back and forth thing in my mind for a long time of like, how do I get out of this? And the only thing that I ever felt like was similar was how I felt on the bench. And I did feel okay only when I played. But you can't play twenty four hours a day, you know, so <laughs> as much as I'd want to, you know, because you feel free, and you,
0: yeah, but so. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of kept out of trouble for a couple of hours, yeah, and then you're you're alone again, or you're with the guys again, yeah,
1: yeah,
0: I get that, so how I mean it's incredible, how are you um operating day to day were were people around you aware of the like the the struggle that you were finding yourself in at that time, or were you kind of holding it together pretty well on the outside?
1: Depends how close you were to me. You know, I can, I have a pretty good way of uh, dressing myself up and, you know, for a part I'd go to, I go to a wedding and, you know, I can pull it together for five or six hours, especially in the earlier years. And my family had a closer like insight to that of like, he's just not who he used to be. Johnny's not what he's supposed to be. He's not showing up where he's supposed to be doesn't have the money doesn't have the same you know kind of laughter and sleeps all day and so at the family level for, for like right away and then my close friends they had just the friends just change right so the, the ones that weren't okay with it became i found ones that were and then when they weren't okay with that i found the new the new ones so it was just a revolving door of friends but the original friends kind of kicked me out early because they were off some you of know, some going pro and some of starting businesses and families and lives and buying houses and my lifestyle just didn't really mesh up with theirs. So it was a lot of changing of scenery and people <laughs> so I could do it the way I want to.
0: So at 20, was it Say so around sort of 22 when you realized that you couldn't maintain playing with the lifestyle that you've got? What, what did the next few years look like without football?
1: Yeah. And even so those first few years of like, you know, active you know addiction and alcoholism for me, which was, uh, I did, I played as much as I could, but with the money I had, even though like pick up there and there is from like 22 to people are, that hang out with me now, think it's crazy when I say this, but from around 22 to 27, I didn't, I didn't really touch a ball. Right? I didn't, I didn't kick it around. I didn't go to any games. I just was a full-time drug addict. Now all my time revolved around chasing drugs, getting drugs, eventually landing in prescription drugs and Oxycontin and heroin and IV heroin use and that is all I did. I mean, I'm talking from the second I got up, I would be pawning stuff, selling stuff, getting stuff, traveling around in cars, meeting people, middlemaning, selling drugs. Um, I had fake doctors in New York. It was, you know, it was full time and it was exhausting, but I did not, not, I mean, I always missed it from a distance. I remember like watching the Champions League game with one eye open being like, no, couldn't even track that, and I'm not even playing, so it was very on periphery, which was hard to think of now because it's like one of the reasons I get up in the morning.
0: Yeah, it's a, uh, a million miles away from from what life is now. I mean, yeah, it sounds like, a, well, it, it is obviously a real rock bottom moment, uh, and I, it must seem really foreign to you now, looking back on that period. But what, what was the, um, or was there a line in the sand moment where you were just like this can't go on? Or was that an, an external prompt?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had many moments where it was pretty obvious that my life was not heading in the direction that it was heading in. Um, but it was actually probably an external. My family was just like, we're we're, we're done, right? We can't continue down this, this chase. You know, they sent me to rehab. I had ran from rehab and they basically found me in their living room. They came home, sent me right back. And when they dropped me off, I'm, I'll never forget. My mom's like, this is it. Now or never. And she never picked me up. You know, I went to rehab, I thought it was going to be for two weeks. Then I went to move to Portland, Maine, which I thought would be one month. And that was nine years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> didn't really go to Portland, you know? why,
0: why Portland? Was that part of, uh, part of rehab or you just needed somewhere different? So the rehab
1: said, uh, yeah, you get, you go here, you get the bus, you know, it was kind of one or the other and. I didn't like the look of the bus and I liked to look at the twin bed instead. So I went with the, the twin bed in Portland. I, I thought I was going to hate it, but well, like I said, I just never, never went home.
0: Found home, I guess, in an unexpected place. Yeah, found a new home. So it was there that you started dipping your toe back into playing with the pickup, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I actually was talking about this with someone the other day because they, you know, they, someone asked me talking about Kennedy Park later there, you know, how do you find all these kids You know, how do you find, you know, a lot of them are, Immigrants that have came from different countries or um you know high school kids or whatever from the area, how do you find them? and I think back like when I first got here, it's like you no, know, they found me first, like you know, I didn't find them it is I was new to the city, I didn't know what to do uh I remember there was a rent like a bike you could use at the the local sober house that I was at, and I jumped on it and I ran down to the local park or I rode my bike down to the local park, and there was a bunch of guys and I kind of stood there awkwardly like you do when you want to get into a pickup game and then someone just gives you the universal wave over and you jump in and that, and that's like, I just I never stopped playing. Ever since then, I would just ride around town on my bike with no cell phone and no money and jump in these pickup games as much as possible at 28.
0: <laughs> Sounds like freedom. Yeah,
1: it was the best. It was, yeah, freedom, man. I felt free.
0: <laughs> so what was it like, that, you know, those those initial games after so long out of it, you know, just, uh, just playing with no... Pressure or expectation. Uh,
1: I remember why I love it. You know, I remember why I love the game. Uh, the laughs that I had, the freedom I had, the freedom to dribble and mag somebody and score and celebrate and, you know, high five with someone that might not even speak the same language as you and be be alright with that and, you know, have these uh, these built in relationships that happen in you know a matter of fifteen minutes. You know, if they find out you can ball a little bit and, you know, they understand what you you understand the game. Like you're in. You know, you're in for life. And that some of those guys that I met really early on are friends to this day and i i got up here in the summer um i remember just like the sunrise being like wow like i'm just really happy to be alive and i forgot like what it means to live so i mean the game people just think it's a ball but for me like it reminded me like why like how awesome life is
0: (laughs) so those like those pickup games would you say they were integral um an integral part of your recovery whilst you were in portland
1: Oh yeah, I think it's it was an essential part because you know when you're in recovery, especially early on, and I and I love the recovery world and I love the rehab world and you know the church basement rooms and all that stuff, but I wanted to know that I was more than just an alcoholic and a drug addict, and um, you know I'm I'm a football player too, man, and I I think that was good to know that I was uh, more than just a guy that struggled with addiction that's trying to overcome life is. I'm also this, right? And none of those guys needed to know that for me to my entry light, right? So this is like entry point for I any mean, rehab is that I have an addiction problem. For me, the entry point for a pickup game is that I play. And I didn't want one entry point for life, which was that I'm an alcoholic. It's just like, I want to be, I want to be a player as well. So it made me realize I'm not like one dimensional and I have to be this one thing and one thing only for the rest of my life. Going back to what we talked about when we were saying like, do you teach an 18 year old that he's more than just a player? You know, for me, I had to know I was more than just an alcoholic. So it was kind of like the same thing.
0: Like a period of rediscovery.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you mentioned that you, you, um, you enjoy the, well, I don't know if you used the word enjoy, so I might be putting words in your mouth there, but the, uh, the, the rehab process and the recovery, for want of a better word, scene. Can you talk me through what rehab looks like?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So rehab is basically you get picked up um people don't end up there by accident they're usually not their decision to go very few uh so you kind of get plopped in this this room with a bunch of people that are suffering from the same thing i went to a, a retreat so a lot of meditation a lot of yoga a lot of self-reflection of kind of where you've been where you've where you plan to go um you know what makes you you negatively and positively and try to become a new person without alcohol and drugs. And like, you know, can you mend the problems in the past? You know, I think that's the biggest thing there is like, you know, for me it was the immense process of, you know, trying to figure out how you, uh, you know, how you, how you are, how can you can mend the bridges from the past, but also move forward and realize those things don't define you for the rest of your life. And then you gotta live in this giant house with a, with a bunch of guys and, messy and <laughs> you live in a twin bed and, you know there's rules you got to be home at the right time and they you and they you have to breathe into the bag and make sure you're not drinking and partying and, you know so it's a whole different uh level of accountability and especially at the age of 28 you're you're kind of in it right you gotta it's like being back in like a, i didn't go to boarding school but I, I feel like it's a the version of a adult boarding school <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's like a am i right in saying there's a religious aspect to the to the recovery process
1: yeah they more i would say they they definitely push more of a spiritual aspect um i wouldn't say religion in particular you know. right so it's not like you know this if they do have you kind of chase you know, some sort of um spiritual practices whether it be meditation prayer you know kind of really just something to like not let like you come to your i don't know how to say this Your rate right my, my ideas and my thoughts that the they were going, the way they were going before it got me to where I was, which was rehab. So like, how can you re renavigate your brain and your mind to have thoughts and a lifestyle that doesn't lead you to a twin bed, you know, at the age of 28, you know? So I think those, that's why they kind of push that because your normal thought process um, is usually filled with for me was resentment, um, false ideology, and a false, false moral belief system of like thinking things were important that they weren't um, and chasing things that they weren't. Like kids are saying, like you know, I only live once, so I'm going to go to a party every weekend. For me now, I only live once, so I'll never miss my niece's birthday. You know, so it's the same thing, but a rearrangement of of values.
0: Uh, So this is working in tandem with you going and playing pickup in in Portland, right? So I guess one is one is feeding the other in some ways. You're yeah, because I imagine it's quite humbling ending up in one of those dorm rooms and. the prospect of playing a game of football makes that more palatable. But then the the positive impact of playing that game of pickup, you can take that into your recovery practice in-house. At what point did you stumble across the, or stumble into the mentoring aspect? Is that something that was uh, figured out, uh, arranged by the, the cyber house that you're involved in, or that you pursued yourself.
1: Yeah, so there's this actually this guy Mike. He was a, he's a basketball player. That um, he was a basketball player, and he thought it was very important to like get back to kids. He's like, you know, you got to get back to the kids. They gotta, you know, be good for you and be good for the kids. to hear the message. So he set me up with a local local team. This guy named Joel was a coach and had me in. and spoke, and I was trying to figure it out. And I told him my story, and I was like, ah, oh, maybe I can I can use this painful experience that i've had to help kids kind of figure out their careers their lives their choices maybe not make the same mistakes but also like not just the drugs and alcohol part but every part of my thought process as a kid was skewed so kind of bringing those examples and that really started pretty early on in my recovery I'd say the first few months but before i was a mentor i did go back and play college ball one more time so
0: oh let's talk about it yeah <laughs> I, let's go yeah tell me
1: yeah 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 yeah. So that was like uh So at 28, 29, I was, um, playing pick up doing, doing all you know, the crazy stuff and, and, you know, b- bouncing around town. And I was like, I'm not bad. I'm I'm still pretty good. And I was playing against local college players. And I was like, I think I still got this. And I went to a local college and was like, Hey, I'll volunteer coach. And he's like, yeah, jump aboard. And I would jump in on sessions. And I'm like, know, give a little, little, little Meg, little list, score a little goal, a little chip. I'm like, Hey man, I got the, you know, I can still do this thing. And, uh, So at 28, I fought the NCAA, which is like the governing body of the college scene. And basically the way it played out before is I had graduated and my eligibility to play in the, in the, in the college scene was over. So I had to fight for him and and fight for my, my right back. And I told him I was a drug addict, and alcoholic, and I fought back and they waived one year of eligibility and I was the first person in history to ever get it through, through the the governing body of the NCAA.
0: Amazing. Yeah. So you get one, one full college year yeah of, of football back yeah yeah 28 yeah. <laughs> so the veteran you've strolled back in as the veteran of the team did that involve any like so you you've got that eligibility back does that involve any like mandatory classroom time
1: yeah i went back i was a full-time student i was uh, getting my degree in psychology uh, i had graduated years ago with a degree in economics but i'm going back and i'm working in this human services field this time working with kids you know working in social work and yeah, I was a uh, I was a full time student, full time player. The kids when I first like was suiting up, they were looking at me like, "Who's oh, this, this guy? Who's this old guy?" And he, why is he even out here? They're all you know jabbering in the in the, in the locker room. I guy can guys. grow a bit <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this guy. Yeah, you know, you get like, a walker. And uh, so when I when I showed up, they were all calling me dad. You know, you know, hazing me a little bit. And uh, but once I started to play, we all became close friends, and they still called me dad all season but it was it was worth it
0: <laughs> yeah i bet to get one more one more run out did that feel like closing the chapter in a healthy way i guess like you'd you'd um you'd kind of got what was owed to you like what you owed you felt you had owed to yourself
1: yeah for sure it was uh definitely a moment of closure like i felt like i never never did what i was supposed to do and you know whether it be like be a good teammate or be a good friend you know have that senior day for my family and give flowers and my mom was actually diagnosed with cancer during that year as well. So, um, suffering from stage five lung and brain cancer. So like receiving that information while playing, while talking to my mom about kind of my experience and she's dying, you know, as I get to play. So it was just kind of this moment of like letting her see it as well. And as well, um, you know, and experiencing it myself. So yeah, it was definitely like, I finally felt like I was, I could close a chapter
0: in in the game that I, I always wanted to do. I'm really sorry that you had to go through that with your mum as well. Um, But I I guess you know if there's any kind of saving grace, is that she would have seen you come out the other side of a of an extremely difficult time before she left.
1: Yeah, she uh, she had passed, I think, a few months after the season had ended. Uh, Probably like three weeks after the season ended. But she was able to come to to the last game I'd ever played, and I talked to her and I gave her the flowers and the pictures, and that, that was like really the last time I ever really saw her walk was uh, on senior day. So she like really nosedived after that. And I uh, got really, really sick during that part, but my whole family was there. and It was a pretty, pretty powerful moment from, from my mom to see. I mean, she drove me to a lot of practices all around the state of Massachusetts. So I think for her to finally see me do something with it, whether I didn't go pro, I didn't get the full ride, but like to be out there mentoring kids and, and as well as playing and having that time and, Fighting the NCAA, I think that was a big moment for her as well. So I, I'd say it was big for me, but it was probably just as big for for my folks as well.
0: Yeah, proud moment for them both. I'm certain of that. What did what did the fight look like with NCAA? How does that begin?
1: For me, it was started off with a letter that they said no. Um, I, I said, "Hey, I'm a drug addict and alcoholic, and I'm, this is my story." They said, "No, you you know you can you can appeal it." And when I went back to do it, it was doctor's notes. That same guy, Mike that encouraged me to speak he wrote a letter on my behalf and then it showed in the records that at this old school umass boston when i was playing that i kept leaving halfway through the season so that that's what they said was like a big thing is that it showed that drug addiction and alcoholism was really affecting my um my mental state so right there was the proof like he couldn't make it through the season and then after that happened they voted on it and i think i found out in like July right before or august right before the season happened um and i got it so it was more of like all this information and then there's just a group of people that i don't know who they are somewhere far away from where i was voted on it and i get a little piece of paper that was like go <laughs> and i was like training like a drug addict rocky you know i didn't know what to do i you know it's just like running around town <laughs> so like it was it was yeah it was a it was a crazy moment I, I never thought it was gonna happen
0: cramming a pre-season into like seven days before a season kicks off (laughs) so the mentoring uh you're playing ncaa you're closing that circle and you're mentoring local kids in high school is that something that you you took to quite easily
1: no, start, first all, it started with public speaking. And in college and high school, my, my biggest fear was public speaking my whole life. I, like, even in Florida, I was like, there was a core core requirement that you had to do a public speaking class to the point where I was going to completely transfer schools over that. Like, I hated it. And I started, that's where I really started to do it. I started to public speak and kids would ask me my advice after I told them kind of like a longer version of the story. I just, you know, told you and um, I, I never thought I was gonna be good at it. But I was kind of forced. And it's like, I remember there was, I worked in finance before and the guy, Mike, again, once was like, why don't you try something new for a little while and work with young kids in social work and try to like, just help kids out. And when I did it, I just, there was this moment, um, my mom said, so my mom a long time ago worked for an organization called Make-A-Wish. And she said that she didn't know if she was ever like, should work with kids at all ever. And the first kid she went with was this kid. And she said, you know, what's your name? And she said, my name's Jonathan Edward, which is my name. And she goes, I'm meant to be here. So my first kid that I was working with, I go up to him and I expect him to, you know, kind of same experience. And I say, hey, what's your name? Doesn't say Jonathan Edward. I'm, you know, I'm bummed, man. I'm like, oh, you know, I must. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's in the middle of summer. And I talked to him and I said, hey, what's your birthday? June 27th. I said, no kidding. My birthday is June 27th. And that was the moment where I, I kind of felt like there was a little bit of a sign, like maybe, maybe you're still to work with kids. And I've, ever since then, I've kind of devoted my life to uh,
0: working with kids. Incredible. Um, I guess that's a, a really neat segue into Kennedy Park FC and what you've built there with Harney and the community that you've built through that. Can you just remind me of the, the origins of that? I think you guys were in L.A., right? And you you stumbled across VBFC with Dylan and Tim, and that sparked something inside you to create something back over on the East Coast. Um, I guess, yeah, what, what you've done there is, is what seems like an idea to just create a cool club that plays pickup. You've indirectly set up a support network for dozens of, of people so it um it kind of aligns with that line of um of work when well, i say work that vocation that you've that you've fallen into so um yeah what can you tell us about the early days of of kpfc
1: yeah so i mean i don't know much you want to hear about like the pre pre-story to us getting out to california but you know quick story is basically i got in contact with Darfur united who was um Connie was on. It was a you know a team that represents the people of Darfur. They were doing a training camp in LA. I, I jumped on the coaching staff. And our last day of this of the camp out there, I heard of this thing, Venice Beach Football Club, and I was obsessed with the idea. Like people were going to Venice to like walk around and see other stuff, and I was like, we got to go to Venice Beach Football Club. Like I just kept reminding. Remark- and they were like, are you a kid? Like or a coach? You know, like because I just loved the idea. And uh, and we searched. They weren't around. They weren't around. They weren't around. I couldn't find them. And then they finally ran into somebody, and they're like they set up at like i forget what time it was just hang around this area they'll show up and there they showed up with kobe jones and i was like and it was just a music and people and like you no know, playing music and our guys got on and we lost i was pissed at this kid because he had the wrong sneakers on but you know so <laughs> well, we were playing and i and i just was like this is that i it just reminded me of the early days of pickup in portland when i got up here and, I, and it was just a unique way to get people together and a com- combination of music and excitement of people i was hooked like i couldn't believe it i think i had met one of them out there but like didn't realize i realized later on when we watched like videos of that day that they were there uh and we kind of stole that idea and we gave them credit like that was that's theirs man that's their baby and i like i'll always give credit where credit's due and we brought it back and COVID hit, <laughs> so we didn't do like anything for two for a while uh, and me and honey set up a couple nets and uh we invited a couple people through through Snapchat. At, well, he did, not me. I'm too too old to have that many kids on my Snapchat. And it just it just took off. You know, we weren't even really planning on making an Instagram. It just happened to be that someone took a picture that day and my friend made a logo for me and said, Why don't you make an Instagram? And then like we just started posting games on that Instagram, kinda of like how Venice Beach does. And it kind of took it kind of took off. People loved it. Basketball players didn't love it, but we would play on the basketball court and we'd bring out a state like a, a speaker just like them and organically bang games were happening and it got pretty crazy out there pretty
0: quick the basketball players will get used to it
1: yeah
0: yeah, yeah. (laughs) i mean so what what was it what did that ignite in you do you think like seeing vbfc that day in la um what was it about what you were looking at that ignited something in you
1: I mean, we, I just think we overcomplicate stuff at like the, the big academies and the pay-to-plays and all that. It's like these kids don't seem like they're enjoying themselves. Like, you know, I go to some of these you know, local sessions of clubs and I'm like, hey, good for them. This kid's quick and fast and athletic, but like longevity of a kid to play that long for the rest of his life is, he got he has to love it. I mean, he has to be obsessed. He has to have that laughter and that joy and that celebration and that creativity and that small space. and. You know, remember like that this game is just amazing and they, that's what that brings you, that freedom of pickup and kids just like have fun and remember like this is the best game on the planet. And I think that's what that does. And I think that other clubs and people, we, we overcomplicate a like youth, youth, like we just overcomplicate the game at a youth level, I think.
0: And what sort of age group are you attracting to KPFC now?
1: I think the level early on of just the kids that we brought in were always high school to college, and it's always just stayed there. Not because we we don't want younger kids out there. It's just the size difference is just too big, right? So if you bring anybody below the age of fourteen or thirteen, like those get hurt. So we don't want to do that. Obviously, if a couple of young kids jump on when we're out there, we won't we won't ever get mad at them. And kids are always nice that are out there and let them play for a little bit. But you can pretty much tell from a distance it's made for pretty good player between the ages of 14 22 and then this 135 year old you know me um,
0: getting deeper and deeper sitting deeper and deeper every week yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. but like it's it's usually that group like like 14 to 23 is usually the main group that comes out
0: and these are kids that you uh, do you mentor these regularly or these are these kids that you've met through that or they've just kind of organically found themselves of the games.
1: Yeah. So in the beginning, it was very, we'd post and anyone would show up and kind of the kids that really want it. And we talked about, uh, that want, like that want, I want like the player that wants to be there. So the nine o'clock games, it's like, you better, those are the players that want to be there. So that 7am game people want to be there. So it was just kids that wanted to be there organically in the beginning. Um, usually some of the better players in the area. And that was all word of mouth. We didn't promote. We didn't search. We didn't recruit. We didn't have tryouts. It was come play, and since then, a lot has changed and we're in like a moment of growth. And that's like kind of what I was going to talk about today with you is like we're not really sure which direction to go. I think the pickup game will always be a part of our identity, but it's grown into so much more since then that we're kind of figuring out like where do we go and do we want to grow? Is bigger always better? You know, for me, um, the answer is kind of comes to me quick or I think no, um, maybe bigger isn't always better.
0: What do you think the kids that are coming over there are getting from from Kennedy Park?
1: Yeah, I think early on, like I said, the joy, the community, uh, especially like, you know, a lot of kids that are moving here for the first time from different countries or different places or different areas in the United States or even Maine or moving closer to the Portland area, the Kennedy Park area, just a quick way to make friends. Uh, that's like been really nice for, I think, a lot of people is you come in and you get these group of kids and you play a little bit and then they exchange numbers and whatever and they all become friends and you know have food and i think that's like a core base but after that is these 14 year olds get to play against really high level 22 year olds and 15 year olds play against 19 year olds so it's like you're not stuck in your age group because i don't my team doesn't isn't in leagues it isn't doesn't it's not hold by any rules or or birth dates or it's I allow a fifteen-year-old to play against these older kids, and by the time they get to that next level, they've already been playing people that age for for seven years. So I think that's like the biggest part of the model is we invite, especially when they're on break in college, a lot of high-end college players to come play against local high school players. So when those high school players go to college, it's not this like mental shift of like, "Wow, I'm no longer the best player." It's like you haven't been the best player for the last seven years in this field. So and and you're okay with that
0: yes yeah, so I guess it's ego dismantling in a good way yeah uh does it go beyond football with the with the um the players involved or is there like life lessons and experiences shared uh like a bit of you know like big brother to little brother arm around the shoulder kind of thing or is it strictly we play we go home there's no
1: No, there's definitely a a lot of, I wouldn't say it's strict mentorship because I think, you know, I've been trying to be mentored before at a younger age in like a very concrete way. And I don't know if kids are attracted to that as much. You know, I think as adults, you know, you can kind of get that, right? You sign up for a training and you go there and you get trained. And as adults, we can kind of see the benefits of that. The kids are in school all day. So we kind of... I've organically very much mentored them on the sidelines. Afterwards, they stay. Hey, where do you want to go to school? What does that look like? Big campus, small campus. Do I want to play UP? Like, you know, there's different pro or semi-pro leagues. And how do I want to go about doing that? So I, have, I happen to do that a lot in the beginning. Uh, since I was one of the fewer older guys, it's a couple other guys. Like, um, it's Kid Fossil, Henry, Shetty. These are guys that were a little older that helped me do that in the beginning as well. But the best part recently is we've had some of these younger players like uh, Rion, Mutasser, Mustafa, um, these goals like Garrett. and we They've moved up from being the young team. So there's three teams. that Usually when we play a three-team round-robin, there's um, black shirts, white shirts, and red shirts. And the black team is always the older team that now we're kind of seeing is like we've moved up the group. So... That next group that we were kind of battling with when we first started are starting to become the mentors. So when we play, I see the the Reons who are the kids that we battled and we threw into the we threw on the ground, grabbing that young kid, being like, "Hey, why are you doing that? Where are you going?" To, and then maybe afterwards, "Where are you going to school? Why did you make that play?" So the mentor are guys that we taught are now teaching the younger group, which has been like really reinforces the community aspect.
0: How does it feel when you see that in real time?
1: it's really rewarding, but also the biggest thing that for me is that I know that, um, it's bigger than me then. So I, I, I know that like I could leave and it could be like, it could be sustained because, you know, I, a really valuable lesson early on someone taught me was to not fall into something called founder syndrome is that, uh, basically the place would not exist without you. And I think that was like that moment where I saw, I know it's been happening a lot this past year. Cause been like around two and a half years older or something is, uh, I was like, oh this would be okay. I could step away and be the old man and miss a couple of sessions and it would still it would still run okay and you know the the, con, the it would still stay together and the idea of it all would still stay together.
0: Maybe you were never meant to be a pro footballer John. Maybe you had to go through all of what you went through <laughs> to learn all of what you learn to create something like that that helps generations of teenagers that then help the generation below. Is that something that you thought about before?
1: Maybe it wasn't my road, you know, and I think like you know that's okay. And I, maybe I was gonna, it made me a, it makes me a better coach, that's for sure. And I, I think I look back on it sometimes, and I and I look at Kennedy Park, and I see these guys, you kind know, of going around. I'm just like really happy. I'm like I would have never moved to Portland. I would have never met these guys. I could have never created this thing if it wasn't for heroin addiction or my mom getting sick or, you know, maybe I'm better off this way. You know, to a degree. You know, maybe um, this is more rewarding than you know me me going me going pro or something like that um i don't know if i could see my life being being in different way than being a part of this i would say kennedy park has been one of the most rewarding things i've ever done most organic things i've ever done and made me feel like that's where i'm supposed to be right i don't mind being up at 11 o'clock with a bunch of 19 20 year olds and i remember I was, we were going like buy the buy new boots you know new boots came out you know and i'm sitting where i was this kid picked me up and i looked around the car and there was four 19 year olds and me and we're going to buy new boots and i was like just laughing at myself i'm like what am i doing you know? Like, you know but uh i think i'm exactly where i'm supposed to be
0: yeah, so i think that's a beautiful place to round it up and i think well the fact that there's people like you that are creating these these outlets for for kids and older uh is a is a wonderful thing and I know that yeah despite your struggles through your late teens and early 20s you've definitely come out the other side flying and are putting the experience to fantastic use to help to help others so um, yeah good on you mate and I hope that there's plenty more ahead for for you and Kennedy Park
1: Yeah appreciate that
0: and thanks for talking to me today mate I really appreciate you taking the time out
1: Of course it was a pleasure
0: Thanks for listening And if you enjoyed that episode, be sure to hit the follow button to ensure you never miss an episode. Or visit nplhmag.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter where we'll send you exclusive weekly long reads and up-to-date news on all print releases. See you next time. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to hit the follow button and I'll see you next time.